Today, open your Bibles to the book of of 1 Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You'll notice that chapter 2 in 1 Kings is a long chapter. It's 46 verses, but I'm only going to read the first 12, and I'll summarize the remaining half in the sermon. You can find this chapter on page 521 of your pew Bible. That is here. 1 Kings, chapter 2. 2 verses 1 through 12. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may fulfill His word which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, He said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, And let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. And he came down to meet meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and you know what you ought to do to him. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Let me show you this. In verse 12 it says his kingdom was firmly established. Look at the very end of this chapter. In chapter 46, after it tells about the people that Solomon killed. In verse 46, it says, So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Joadiah, and he went down. He went out and struck him down, and he died. That's there speaking of Shimei. He killed Shimei. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Twice here it says in this chapter, that God's providence is establishing the kingdom in the hand of Solomon. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us your wisdom and insight into this passage of Scripture, which does sound strange when we first read about it. And we pray for your wisdom of how this rightly is to be interpreted and even applied to us today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This section of Scripture I read to you reminds me of what John F. Kennedy said in his presidential inaugural speech when he said that the torch has been passed to a new generation. Well, in our passage today, this is what we see. King David is passing the torch of kingship, rule, and manhood to the generation after him. Now, whenever this new generation ascends to the throne, it's also surrounded by a lot of death in this passage. And there's different types of death in this passage. First of all, notice in, in, verse, in verse 2, David says, I go the way of all the earth. All the earth goes to the grave. And David there is alluding to his death. And it's repeated again in verse 10. It says, David rested with his fathers. Notice this, that the narrator speaks of David resting with his fathers. This type of language you can appreciate, it helps to take the sting out of death. David's going to his grave like his faithful fathers. It's not a place of torment or torture. It's a bed of rest where he, his body now awaits the resurrection of the dead. In other words, you could say that David's death was a good death. But for the remainder of this chapter, after David dies here, there's, there's several bad deaths. In fact, there's three particular bad deaths that happen after this. One's a criminal, one's a villain, one's a criminal, and another guy is a traitor or a transgressor, you can say, against Solomon's kingdom. And there's a fourth guy also later in this chapter. He's not put to death, but he's put in exile, which is a type of death. So I would suggest, suggest to you that this chapter is filled with all types of death. There's good death, the good death of David, surrounded by various bad deaths of others. But notice this, how, how it explains the bad deaths of the other guys. Adonijah, later in this chapter, he's a villain. He's a serpent in the kingdom of Solomon. And it says in verse 25, he was struck down and he died. It does not say that he rested with his fathers. Joab was a criminal, a murderer of men, righteous men. And in verse 34, it says he was struck down and killed and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. It does not say that he rested with his fathers. Shimei was a transgressor and a traitor, a curser. And he crossed a severe boundary and he was struck down and he died. It says in verse 46, but it does not say he rested with his fathers. I'm pointing all this out to you to help you realize and see what in this context, in this passage, even though he rested with his fathers is used for other people and other places, notice how the language of this is being used in this chapter. He rested with his fathers. That's David. That's the good death of David. But it's not describing the death of Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei, the bad death of these, of these people who deserve execution. You can see there's a difference in the death of the righteous and the death of the wicked. And also it's, it, show, it shows you this, that when we come to the end of our life, we still have a mission. When we come to our deathbed, we still have a goal, a mission, and that is to die 
well to have a good death like David so the narrator of our life can say he's resting with his faithful fathers. That's the language of this passage here. And it's showing you the different types of deaths between these men. Now as we move on, we're going to look at David's speech. This is David's, uh, David's way of passing the torch to his son Solomon. And this is alluding to something here earlier in the Bible. Remember when Moses wants to go into the promised land, but he can't. And then Joshua, the torch is passed to Joshua, and Joshua goes to conquer the promised land. Well, David, he wanted to build the temple, but he couldn't. God forbid him to do that. So now he's passing the torch so that Solomon will build the temple. And so, and there's some unfinished business that David couldn't finish up in his lifetime. And so he's passing the torch to Solomon to finish some business of executions. Now I'm going to break up David's speech here into three parts. And that is David's, he's going to talk about Solomon's masculinity, Solomon's maturity, and also some mandates that he's going to give to Solomon. Look at Solomon's masculinity. It's what he explicitly says. He says, I go the way of all the earth, in verse 2, be strong, therefore, Solomon, and be a man. Literally, that's what it says. Be a man. New King James says, prove yourself a man. Well, there's helpful point to pick up on this language of the man, the term man he's using here. In the Bible, there's a generic term for man or mankind, and it's the term that you know very well, Adam. Adam was the first human. Adam was the first of mankind. But later, in Genesis 2, after he is identified as the Adam, Adam becomes the Ish, who has the Isha. That's the Hebrew word for the male. He is male. His gender is male. He's masculine. And then Adam is the Ish. Ish is male or man. And he's given the Isha, which is female. And that's why he says, out of Ish, out of man, came woman. So you see the maturity of Adam. Even in Genesis chapter 2, he goes from Adam to Ish. He goes to a, a, a... a mere man to a, a, who's single to a man who has responsibility now as a male toward a female. That's what Solomon's going through right now. And we see this kind of in chapter 1. He is the Adam, so to speak, where he's the man positioned to be king over Israel. And here in chapter 2, King David says, Be the Ish. Be the man. Be the husband. He's emphasizing his masculinity in his position. It's not just simply saying, be a human. (laughs) Be a man. Be strong. That's what he is saying. Very similar to what God would say to Joshua. Be strong and courageous against the giants in the land. Don't compromise. Move in there and conquer them. Now why is David explicitly referring to his young son here, who's young, I'll explain to that in a second, as an ish, as a husband, Well, he is husband to Israel. As king, he's going to be the type of husbandly caretaker. He has to be strong. He has to be a man at this time of his life, even now, to the bride. To the the bride, that is Israel, who he is figuratively represented as marrying. 
whenever you think about this time in Solomon's life, David is 70 years old, and it helps you put some math together to calculate how old Solomon probably was when he was for initially reigning as king. If David committed his sin with Bathsheba at about 50 years old, maybe a year or two later, Solomon was born. Then you have about 18 years later, here is Solomon. Scholars range between like either 15 or 20. David committed his sin with Bathsheba somewhere in his early 50s, somewhere around that time period. And then Solomon is born soon after that. Solomon right now is either 15, between 15 or 20 years old. He's probably a teenager. There's another king that would come later who was crowned king in Israel at, at, at eight years old. So even he is young, according even to the, today's standards. And so David, by saying this, be it ish, be a man, he is emphasizing the need for strength in his position. Solomon is going to have to demonstrate strength in a very severe way. And I'll explain to you more details about this, but let me make a couple applications. Solomon understands that in his position as husband, in his position as husband toward Israel or king over Israel, one of the worst things he can do with his manliness is to weaken his manliness. If he rules out of weakness, then he will fail. He has to rule out of strength. This actually serves to show you what's so lopsided about our world. So many times, many people are, are very moral, they're very good at being good, but not good at being a man. They're not good at having strength. They're not good at having a backbone. A lot of people are righteous in character, but weak in their masculinity. This shows you, you can even see this sometimes on the political level and nationally. As you heard, maybe, maybe heard people say, on the extreme left, on the political spectrum, there's the crazies. And on the, on the right, there's the, the cowards. So it shows you that you want people in office, in positions, especially of rule and responsibility. Not only are they good, but they have to be good in their masculinity. They have to be good in their strength. They have to be good at being a husband. They have to be good at being strong with a backbone. One of the worst things you can have is a leader who is weak. All that is going to do is invite terror and warfare and oppression because he can't kill serpents. We're going to see that Solomon is able to kill the serpents. So as a, as a man in need of strength, who needs to grow in strength and, and be strong and prove himself a man, emphasizing his, his masculinity in his position, what should he do? He should mature in the law of God. That's why right after David says, be a man, he talks about the law of God. Look at verse 3. And there's seven ways in which G King David describes the law of God. Number one, he says, keep the charge of the law your God. The word charge there is also another word for keep. God has charged Israel with the law. He even ends this list saying it's written in the law of Moses. So the beginning and the ending of his speech here reflect the law of God. He says, number two, walk in his ways. The ways are paths of God, where you would step, where you would walk. Keep his statutes. A statute is a law, a principle, or a policy, which you would also study 
and see how the same type of pattern should apply to a certain judicial case. That's what lawyers do. That's what judges do. That's what you all do. We all do when we make decisions. We try to use metaphors and analogies to say, well, if this is true, then this is what I should do as well. Fourthly, he says, keep his commandments. Commandments are duties, obligations, and instructions. Keep his judgments. Judgments here is referring to, it's a judicial term, making good judgments in society. Keep his testimonies, David says. The word testimonies is referring to the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments was the testimonies that were put in the Ark of the Testimony in the Holy of Holies. And lastly, he says it's all written in the Law of Moses. But I want to encourage you with this as well. Notice why David wants his son to do this. What? Just because he's a killjoy? What? Why does he want him to do this? He doesn't want him to be happy? No, he wants him to prosper. That you may prosper in all that you do wherever you turn. So David wants him to prosper in God's law. David's handing this torch over to him with all those memories of where he fell short and was forgiven. And yet he wants his son not to fall in those same ditches, which he actually will do later in his life. But at this time, we're learning a lot about comparisons, how we can compare Solomon's life to ours. So David is giving his teenage son here a backbone. He wants him to have gravitas as a man. He wants his son to be righteous against evil. He knows he has to have the moral law of God in his backbone, in his background. And he needs divine authority to back up his masculine authority. Any man who does not appeal to God, any man that does not have God's law in the backbone of his mind and soul, he's a narcissist. He's a tyrant. All authority, all gravitas, all that's good, beautiful, and strong comes from the living God. And God shares it with us. And here, God is sharing it with Solomon. I want you to think about and know this, that what David says here applies to Christians today. It applies to Christians today about the law of God. Because of this, when the Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians argues against the law, he is specifically targeting the Jewish aspects of the law. The Jewish aspects of the law that have died out, that have expired, but there's moral requirements there's ethical commands that God still gives us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, listen, Paul says this, Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's what Paul says. He's referring to God's Word. So don't look at this and think, well, that's just a old, bunch of Old Testament junk, or that's a bunch of Law, law of Moses junk. No. It's morality. It's Christian stuff. If you want to be strong as a person, if you want to have the righteous character and strength and godliness and masculinity and even your femininity as a, as a woman, you, it comes from the law of God. It all reflects the God who gives it. So David here is emphasizing the maturity that Solomon's going to need from the law of God. Now let's, look, let's transition now to the mandates. This is what God, or it's not God, but David is going to tell Solomon to do. There's t- it boils down to two things. Number one, be kind. Number two, kill. Okay? <laughs> or put to death. Execute. There's one person he's to be kind with. And look in verse 7. This is the first one. The kindness. Barzillai. 
He says, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai because he let, he let them eat at your table for they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Now, when you study 2 Samuel chapter 19, you'll see this story in verse 33. They've killed Absalom. David's coming back into the promised land. And Barzillai is a rich old man. He's actually 80 years old. He's 10 years older than David. And he's about to die. And David says, hey, come on in to Jerusalem with me. And Barzillai says, no, you can have all these possessions. You can have all this. You're God's anointed. We're so glad you're back in charge and as king. And Barzillai helps David with all his provisions go back into Jerusalem. And David does, uh, David does not forget that. Soon, Barzillai died after that. The reason why we know he died, because David doesn't mention him he mentions his sons. Most likely this man died right after he helped David. In verse 7 it says, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. So the implication here is Barzillai has died and went, went to be with the Lord. So that's why David wants him, Solomon, to be kind to Barzillai. Now let's look at the killing. What you see is David mentions <clears throat> two people. That, he, that Solomon is going to need to be put to death. Now, before I do this, I need to step back and retreat a little bit and give you a biblical picture and biblical worldview to make sense of why David and why it's righteous for David to have him kill, for David to have Solomon kill Joab and Shimei eventually. Now, here's the picture I want to paint for you. When you look up to the sky, your face is looking up to the sky. You know what face is always looking up to the sky? That is the earth. The earth has a face that's always looking up to God in the sky. And also the earth has a mouth. This is biblical imagery and biblical worldview. And there's two things you do not want the, the face of the earth or the mouth of the earth to have. And the first thing is the blood of the righteous. When the blood of the righteous goes into the mouth of the earth, the mouth of the earth cries out to God for justice and vengeance. That's the first thing. You don't want the blood of the righteous to fall upon the face of the earth. The second thing you don't want the earth to have is God's curse. If God curses the earth, then you have a problem. So what's happening here at the end of David's life, there's two problems that really need to be dealt with. The blood of the righteous is spilt upon the earth and God's curse has come upon the earth, upon the land of Israel. And David wants that blood of the righteous dealt with, and David wants God's curse removed. That's what's making sense of this. Now, let me explain to you. Let's look first at the blood of the righteous. David says this in verse 5. He says, You know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. Now, I think right there, what he's referring to is how Joab disobeyed David's orders and he killed Absalom. Even though Absalom should have been put to death, David commanded him, do not kill my son. And he said that before everybody so everybody could hear it. And so David does take, take that personally. But he does mention two men who were righteous, Abner and Amasa. And I won't get into all the, all the details of this, but historically Joab killed both of these men these commanders of Israel in peacetime, he murdered them. 
And in Numbers chapter 20, uh, 35, listen to this. It says this, Bloodshed defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except the blood of him who shed it. In the Old Testament, in the, you couldn't take an animal and spill the blood on the, on the land and atone for the blood on the land for the animal for the human blood shed. You had to take the murderer, the one who shed the blood, then you shed his blood, who murdered that man, now scales are balanced, now it's atoned for. This makes sense as to why, why it was righteous for Solomon to eventually go and kill Joab later in this chapter. Now let's look at the curse here. You don't want God's curse in the land. He says this in verse 8. Look at verse 8. David says, You, you have known what Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, how he came and cursed me, and with a malicious curse in the day, he, that man cursed David, and he totally threw all these curses, and David said, I would not put you to death, but now he's going to tell Solomon to put him to death. And let me show you this emphasis of curse to justify what I'm saying. Turn to 2 Samuel. Go back to 2 Samuel, chapter 16. And notice the emphasis of cursing here in 2 Samuel 16. Look at verse, at verse 7. 2 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man. He's speaking to David. You rogue. The Lord has brought upon you, David, all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, David, because you are a bloodthirsty man. And this is where the sons of Zeruiah want to kill him. And David says, no, don't kill them. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son has come from my own body, seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Here's my point. Notice this. Shimei is an instrument of God's curse. Even David acknowledges saying, yeah, the Lord is cursing me. Let him do it. This man is an instrument of God's curse. He's cursing David and by extension thus, Cursing the land, cursing Israel, because David is king over all of Israel. And here's the point. David understands that Solomon needs to remove the curse. He needs to remove the curse from Israel. And that's why eventually Solomon will kill this man, Shimei. Now, one thing I want to, I want to, another picture I want to paint for you. There are four men that he's going to deal with here. Three of them, Solomon, there's three of them he will execute. And there's one he'll put in exile. Now, what I'm going to paint, another picture I'm going to paint for you, is that what Solomon does, he echoes or he alludes to what's called the three falls of man. Date, think of this. In Genesis, Adam failed to kill the serpent. In Genesis, Cain, number two, killed his brother. And then 
After the sons of God intermarried daughters of man, God cursed the earth with the flood and then cleaned it with the flood. You have those three falls of man in Genesis. You can see how Solomon, when he kills three people here, it's going to mirror reflect those three falls. Let me explain the first one. Adonijah was Solomon's half-brother. Adonijah, he didn't kill him at first. He said, Adonijah, if you are well, if you do good, that's fine. I won't kill you. But this is what Adonijah does. He goes to ask for Abishai, that beautiful young virgin, as a, to be a wife. He wants Solomon to give him Abishai as a wife. But whenever Solomon senses that, he understands this man's a serpent because this man's grabbing for the woman. What happened in Genesis 3? The serpent went after the woman. And the man was not masculine enough to kill the serpent. He wasn't strong enough to kill the serpent because he weakened himself. He was effeminate at that time in his sinful weakness. He should have been more of a man. Solomon senses that since Adonijah is going for Abishai, that means he still wants the kingdom. That means he's functioning just like the serpent did in the garden. Therefore, he deserves the death penalty. And that's why Solomon will kill Adonijah. So what is Solomon doing? He's doing it. He's better than Adam. He's stronger than Adam. Now, after the fall of man, what did God do with Adam in that garden? He expelled him. He kicked him out. That's what Solomon's going to do to a man named Abiathar. Abiathar was a priest. Abiathar was a priest in the garden of God in the tabernacle. And Abiathar went with Adonijah. And so Solomon says, I'm not going to kill you, even though you deserve to die. Get out. What does that remind you of? Adam and Eve deserved to die immediately in Genesis chapter 3. But God basically says, I'm not going to kill you right now. You're not going to die right now, but get out. That's what he does to Ab- Abath- Abiathar. That's what God did to Adam. Also, what did Cain do to Abel? Of course, you know the story. He killed Abel. But at that time in history, there was, it was against the law of God to execute people. At that time in history, Cain was not going to suffer the death penalty for killing his brother because humanity was not mature enough. You could not bring the death penalty upon people until after Noah's flood. After Noah's flood, then humanity comes into a place of kingship. Then you can bring the murderer to death and put him to death because now you are like God. You're the executioner. You can actually bring justice upon the earth. This is how Solomon is a lot stronger and a lot better than the days of Cain. The Cain figure does not get away. So what happens is, even this, this shows you how God's doing this. Joab, whenever he hears that Solomon's going to kill him, he goes into the tabernacle and he holds onto the horns of the altar. He thinks he has a safe spot. And the guy going there to kill him says, uh-oh, that's God's altar. So he goes back to Solomon and says, Solomon, says, Solomon he's in, this, in the tabernacle. And Solomon says, go in there and kill him there. There is no safe spot. He sends the man back in there, kills him right there in the tabernacle by the, near the altar, showing that God is the one bringing his justice upon him. Solomon has this, the masculinity. He has the strength. He has the law of God, knowing that you put the murderer to death. That's what he does to Joab. 
Then you have the issue of Shimei. Shimei, as we saw, he is cursing David by extension, cursing Israel, calling for God's judgment to come upon that. David even acknowledges, yes, it's a judgment of God. It's a curse of God. What did God do after the fall of man? He cursed the ground. So he had this repeat here of a cursing coming upon, but he wants to clear the slate for his son, remove the curse. And what's is interesting, Shimei, his name, what his name means, his name means loud news or loud report. The loud is there. It's, it's kind of both end. What is he doing? He's loudly cursing David. He's living up to his name. So what Solomon does with Shimei, he tries to contain the curse. He says, stay in Jerusalem. If you ever leave Jerusalem, if you ever leave this boundary, you're dead. Well, Shimei's slave goes away. After three years, his slave runs off down to Gath, which is a Philistine town. So Shimei gets up. And Mr. Curse Carrier is carrying his curse with him all the way through the land of Israel, goes down to the land of Philistines, takes his slave, and comes back. In other words, the curse is not contained. And also by going to Gath, he is repeating what King Saul tried to do in getting David. David went to Gath for refuge. David went down there for refuge. King Saul is going everywhere looking for David. He's basically repeating what King Saul did in trying to go find David. And then by traversing the whole land of Israel, bringing that curse with him, we know that the curse needs to be removed. And that's why it was just and right for Solomon at this time to put Shimei to death. So you see that all this is a fruit and an outworking of his righteous masculinity at this time in his life. He does not want to compromise his strength at this time because he has to firmly establish the kingdom of God. Notice this, that Satan may know your strengths, but also he will know your weaknesses. Later we're going to see that Solomon had his weaknesses. His weaknesses toward women and gold and all that would compromise his heart. But at this time in his life, we can see the parallels and the direct applications we can make. Now, this is a son of David doing this. We see how it echoes back and redeems, so to speak, the three falls of man. And he's a better Adam, a better Ish. But also, not only does it look back, it looks forward. Jesus Christ, whenever he, the ultimate son of David, the ultimate and last and new Adam, he destroyed the serpent's power. He told the old Jewish people that their priesthood is exiled. It's expired. Their old temple regulations are gone. Also, Jesus atoned for murderers. Peter said, you crucified the Lord. Now believe in the Lord. And many of them, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, came to the Lord. Those murderers who murdered the Lord came and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ removed that shimmy from creation. He removed the curse. He totally removed the curse that you can eat crawfish. You can even eat a snake if you want to and cook it right. But the point is that all the land, the curse is removed. This trajectory of the Bible going from Genesis to Jesus, it helps you understand and interpret the deaths and the killings here, the righteousness of it. And it helps you also filter this into your personal life, whether you're a husband, whether you run for office, 
or whether one of you become president of the United States, and if you have political adversaries and that they're evil and they're wicked, if they've done treasonous works, you do need to prosecute. You need to seek to put them in jail. You don't need to be a good guy on the right side, on the political right, and be weak. Your weakness will let the serpents in, and you will fail to protect the bride, the nation that you represent and overlook, or the family that you have. This is why the beauty of Scripture shows this about the difference in male and female and why the law of God is the muscle, the backbone for all strength of righteousness against evil. And when a nation throws away the law of God, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that nation is compromised and becomes weak. May God raise up Solomons like this Solomon was when he was probably 18 years old. May God raise up Solomons in our generation that had this type of backbone and this wisdom to take care of evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will strengthen us in your word, that you will strengthen our nation. We give you thanks, Lord, to how you've protected us in so many times in the past. We pray, Father, that your mercy and grace will abide with us in a special way in the future. We pray, Lord, that you will give righteousness and integrity to all of our civil leaders. And we give you thanks, Lord, for your hand of blessing upon this country for, from generations past. And we pray that you will preserve us in your mercy and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.